This morning, we're going to be continuing our Christmas series, which is our fifth Christmas series. Today's the third Sunday of Advent and the third message in this series. We'll be reading from Hebrews, not a traditional Christmas text, if you will, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Hebreos capítulo 10, versículos 1 a 18. Now, this year's Christmas series is the first one that is different, Christmas, different than those that have been before. For the last few years, we have uh, examined the cast of Christmas, all of the different individuals who played a role in the biblical accounts of the birth of Christ. Now, this year, we're looking at the Christ of Christmas who's not just another character in the Christmas narrative, but he is the central character toward which every other character is pointing and making reference to and awaiting and announcing and preparing the way for Christ, who's not just a piece of the puzzle, who's not just the the cherry on top, but he is the whole reason, not just for Christmas, but for our lives. So this series is the Christ of Christmas. And, and when we look at the Christ of Christmas, we want to see the whole Christ, not just a sentimental picture of the baby Jesus, but the Christ who God the Father sent God the Son into the world to be. Namely, the Christ who is sent as Messiah, as prophet, as priest, as king. Titles, it might sound a little bit technical to you, but, but believe me, once you understand just who God the Father sent God the Son into the world to be, oh, it makes Christmas all that much better. And in the first message of the series, we looked at Christ as M- Messiah, who, which means the, the anointed one the one who, who encapsulates everything that Israel and God's, God's covenant people were looking forward to, the anointed one, the chosen one, if you will. And then last week, Christ as prophet, the one who comes and perfectly speaks on behalf of God, but not just on behalf of God, but as God himself, the exact imprint of God, perfectly revealing God to us that we might know who he is and how we ought to live before him. And this week, we see Christ as priest. And you think, well, I don't really care about priests because I haven't ever had a need for a priest. And maybe even you came up in your childhood in another religious system and you did have priests and you think, I have no, I have no need for that anymore. God sent Christ into the world to be our perfect priest. With that, let's look at another facet of the whole Christ whose birth we celebrate on Christmas. With that, would you read along with me in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Praise God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for what we just read. We thank you that what we just read is true. What we just read, though, though sounding technical and complex, offers a salve to our soul that we weren't even aware that we needed. We thank you that, that amidst the, the sentimental and, and, and commercial trappings of Christmas, we find the celebration of the one our hearts have always needed and never, never longed enough for, but the one in whom all of our longings find their satisfaction. We pray that you would reveal him to us once again today. Amen. Well, this is, goodness, this is the kind of passage that one, requires a contextual understanding. You really have to understand what the author here is saying 
in light of what he's just said and what he's going to say. And then even within this passage, we're not even going to be able to scratch the surface, which just kills me. But, but let's at least try. Let's at least try to, to begin to plumb the depths of what's in here. And before we do, just want to tell a, a, a quick story about two years ago. Two years ago last month when we bought the house that we currently live in. We purchased it, <clears throat> and when escrow closed, we had agreed with the home's previous owner uh, to, to allow her to remain in the home for a few days after escrow closed so that she could take that time to move her things out and say goodbye to this home that had been her home for years. And the day came for us to move in, and we had about a dozen people from the church helping us. It was, it was a Thursday, so we couldn't move in the morning. We had to wait until everybody got off work. So once everybody got off work, they, they came to our house, and we, we packed everything up and, and moved out of the house. We were actually just across the street from the house we were moving into. Uh, we also had people coming from out of town, family from out of town to help us. So we had like five hours to get this thing done. And the next day, we didn't have that help anymore because family was going back and people in the church had already committed just this day. And so it's time for us to move in. It was like 5 p.m. The sun is starting to set. And we realize she hasn't moved out yet. She's actually still in the house. And so we start moving our stuff onto the front lawn just like to get something going. And she's in the house seeing this happening and she's feeling like, I, she literally said this, she, I feel like I'm being evicted. And so here we are, two, two different parties. One party feeling wronged because we had agreed upon this move date, right? And we had only limited resources and we had to get this done. And I'm getting frustrated. She's in there going, this has been my home for a decade. Do you know the memories that I've created in here? It's not so easy just to, to pick up and leave. Both parties feeling like they have been wronged. We were at an impasse, a conflict that couldn't seem to be resolved. Now, fortunately, the, the realtor who was helping us buy the house was the realtor helping her sell the house. So he, it was uncomfortable for him, but he stepped in, he calmed her down emotionally, he, he came to us and represented her side to us, helped us to see her side with compassion and resolve the issue. And the realtor stepped into that conflict as a mediator, one who, who arbitrates between two parties who are in conflict. And when we talk about the ministry of a priest, we are fundamentally talking about the work of a mediator. That is what a priest is. A priest is a mediator one who mediates between two parties. And in the Old Testament, priests were appointed to mediate the conflict that existed between God and man by, by aiming to provide a solution to that conflict. And the biblical word for that proposed or necessary needed solution is, is atonement. But as we've seen in 1 Samuel and now in, here in Hebrews 10, not a single priest ever effectively achieved resolution in that conflict. 
Not one. And in our lives, we, we look to imperfect mediators. We, we, set, we set up other people and, and, and other systems as, as priests and mediators, arbitrators for us. But, but more often than not, we, we make the grave error of, of looking to ourselves as a mediator. Trying to assuage the conflict that we have with God by, our, by ourselves. Trying to, to self-atone for ourselves. Or even worse, we ignore the need for atonement. And live as though a conflict never existed in the first place. <laughs> You're thinking, wait, I thought this was a Christmas message. <laughs> it, it, it is. Because Hebrews 10.5, look down at Hebrews 10.5, speaks of Jesus' birth. And, and it tells us why Jesus was born. And to summarize the verses following verse, verse 5, Hebrews 10 tells us that Jesus was born to stand once and to sit forever. Write that down. Jesus was born to stand once and to sit forever. Now, what does that mean? And how does that relate to what we just talked about with the, the priestly mediator work? We'll find out. But, but here's another question. What, 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 what is the conflict that exists between God and man? And, and there, there are those of you who are in this room who have been Christians for a long time, and you think, I know what the conflict is. But it's helpful to never just assume and to go, yeah, I, I got it. It's helpful to rehearse this and be reminded just what kind of a conflict we're dealing with here. So let's look to Hebrews 10 to answer that last question first and then seek to understand the wonder of Jesus' perfect high priestly ministry and why that matters to you and to me. So, so two points to guide the rest of our time today. The first being the dilemma before, before Christmas. The dilemma before Christmas. And secondly, the joy because of Christmas. The joy because of Christmas. Now let's look at the dilemma. The dilemma before Christmas. The, the, the cause of the conflict between God and man is mentioned three times in verses 1 through 4. Look, look at verses 1 through 4. There's a word in there. It's a word that, that Christians use fairly often, and it's a word called sin. Now, to understand why sin creates a conflict, I actually want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 1. Uh, it's, it's just a few books back in your Bibles. Turn there. Probably 10 or so pages behind where we are now give you a moment to get there, because this is, this is important. The Apostle Paul sort of describes who God is and who we are, and it sets the stage, helps us understand why sin creates a conflict. So in 1 Timothy 1, scroll down to, to verse 17. This is how the Apostle Paul describes God. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. This is who God is. 
He's the king of the ages, the king over all kingdoms. He is immortal. He, he always was and always will be. He is the undying eternal one. He's invisible. He's, he's completely other than us, transcending created reality before and behind all that is created. The only true God and thus the only one worthy of glory and honor and praise and that is true forever and ever and ever is what Paul is saying. That's who God is. Now, scroll up to verses 9 and 10. Here Paul describes humanity. He says, beginning verse 8, Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for whom? All of us. And here's how he describes us. For the lawless and the disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for Murderers for the sexually immoral, men who, pro, who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, in our sin, we have set ourselves up as adversaries to God, rejecting His truth, replacing it with our truth, rejecting his righteousness and his glory and living however we would like to. God is the God of 1 Timothy 1.17. We are the sinners of 1 Timothy 1.9-10. And this isn't about guilt by degree as though some people are worse than others, when it comes to the conflict between us and God, it is the same for all of us. If any of us have sinned, we all fall short of the, story of, of the, the standard of God's glory. And the, the, the divine dilemma comes about because God is not indifferent to our sinfulness. God cannot simply overlook He cannot simply excuse sin. He must punish sin as the holy judge. Listen, in a a human court, if a judge were to simply overlook the offenses of a guilty defendant, he'd be thrown off the bench. Imagine in the the O.J. Simpson case, if the jury actually back and render a guilty verdict, which some of you might think should have been guilty. So what, what what if they came back and said guilty, and the judge just said, you know, it's all right. It's all right. We're, you're good, OJ. Just, just make sure you don't do it again, okay? And if you do, maybe I'll excuse it again then. No, it's ridiculous. The one who's charged as judge, and there is no higher judge than God himself, cannot simply overlook sin. This dilemma drives the human soul to resonate with what Job said in in Job 9, verses 33 and 34. Job suffering under under the weight 
of his suffering, which was profound. He says in, in Job 9.33, if only there were someone to mediate between me and God. And Job spoke so much better than he knew. If only there were someone to mediate between me and God, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. For those who understand this dilemma, that is the cry of our soul. Or at the very least, it should be. If only there were someone to mediate. We need a mediator. Oh, but, but there are the priests under the Old Testament law. People, people who, are, who are appointed to, to mediate between God and man. Are, are they a sufficient mediator? No. No. Hebrews 10.1. Turn, turn back to Hebrews here. Hebrews 10.1 says that the law and its priests were never able to, nor were they ever intended to atone for sin. It was established. God gave the law and the priests under the law as a shadow, pointing forward to a future and, and, and better reality, identifying a need. And there were two reasons why Old Testament priests could not atone for sin. One is because the blood of bulls and goats, look at verse 4, can't take away sin. Why can't the blood of bulls and goats take away sin? Because they're bulls and goats. Human sin is human sin. A, a goat cannot stand in the place of a man or a woman and sufficiently pay for their sins. Instead, ver verses 1 through 4 tell us that that sacrificial system was intended to remind them of their sinfulness, to remind them that there is still a conflict. And the second reason why the priests of the Old Testament law couldn't atone for sin was because, look at verse 11, because they stood daily at their service. Sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year. The, the word stand is used very intentionally. So long as one is standing, they're working. These, these priests never sit down in their priestly ministry because their work is never complete. Because they've never sufficiently atoned for sin. And a further reason why their work is never complete is because according to Hebrews 7.27, they have to first atone for their own sin and then the sin of the people. They themselves are sinners. They themselves are imperfect. They themselves need this conflict between them and God resolved. Never perfectly achieving atonement. And, and friends, when, when you try and mediate for yourself but by just trying harder, by being better, by punishing yourself with guilt and, and, and self-deprecation, to try and atone for your sin, you live a weary life of standing day after day in your own priestly ministry trying to justify yourself before God. 
And that is the life of running on a treadmill, of being exhausted, of bearing a burden that you were never intended to bear, nor could you ever bear it. And I wonder if there's anybody here today experiencing this acutely, very aware of this. If that's you, if that's ever been, been you, I want you to, to listen up from this point forward. Not, not that you shouldn't have been listening up until now, but, but listen carefully. Because I, I would suspect that this speaks pretty heavily to almost every single one of us. Almost every single one of us have been in the place of trying to, to self-atone. Seeing our guilt, acknowledging the dilemma, and then just trying to fix it ourselves. Listen, according to verse 3, the law and its priests, at best, existed to keep people from forgetting their sinfulness, to, to remind them that the conflict, that the dilemma still remains. That is the primary reason why that Old Testament system was in place, to keep, them, to keep the people from forgetting that there's a problem and it needs to be resolved. And there is one very simple, very simple yet terrifying way that God could resolve this conflict. You tracking with me? He, he could finally, once for all, judge us as our sins deserve. That would actually be the most logical resolution to this conflict. Yet, R.C. Sproul says, the most perplexing, the most confusing, the most ununderstandable theological question is not why there is suffering in the world, but why God tolerates us in our sinfulness. Why God hasn't once for all judged us, judged us as our sins deserve. God would be entirely justified in doing so. In fact, like I said, it, it is what makes most sense for the judge to carry out the sentence that, that the, the guilty verdict demands. Yet he hasn't. He hasn't. You, if you're not a Christian this morning, you, you are a sinner. But you woke up this morning and you're still alive. That, that, that is that's mind-blowing if this dilemma really does exist. Just stop and wonder at that. Our, 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 our awe and our wonder and our joy is even further intensified, though, when we realize that instead of judging us once for all, he did the most unexpected thing, and he did something else once for all. Which brings us to the second point, the joy of Christmas. Now, we, we rightfully and hopefully rightfully see this dilemma that we had before Christmas. But Christmas brings a particular joy and it has nothing to do with Christmas spirits or Christmas movies or Christmas songs even or Christmas lights or Christmas presents or Christmas trees and go on and on and on. The joy because of Christmas is the joy found in Christ being born to stand once and to sit forever. 
We sing joy to the world every Christmas. Why? Because of Hebrews 10.5. Look back down at Hebrews 10.5. Note that this verse carries a, a, a different tone. Okay, it, 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 it's a contrast with verses 1 through 4. But, consequently, when Christ came into the world, look at verse 5. But, when Jesus was born, but on that first Christmas, something changed. Look at verse 5. Jesus, quoting the words of Psalm 40. Jesus knew, though he's quoting the words of David, this is speaking of what Jesus knew when he came into the world. He knew that our conflict didn't need more sacrifices. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. That's not what you're after, God. He knew that our conflict needed a body, a human body. Look at the last part of verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. Look at this. A body you have prepared. Who is the you? That you there is God the Father. A body that God the Father has prepared. Listen, friends, this situation, this dilemma, it's, it's true. It involves two parties in opposition, like our home buying experience, but the conflict between God and man, it's completely unlike any other human mediation case, period. In the conflict between God and man, only one party has been offended, and that's it. Only one. God has been profoundly and acutely aggrieved by the other party. He himself is fully innocent entirely without blame or fault. He has no obligation to satisfy anything in this except to exact retribution. That's it. That's the only thing that he really has the obligation to do. The other party, which is all of humanity, which is us, is undeniably, categorically, and completely guilty. Now listen, this guilty party, for the most part, doesn't even care to be reconciled. We spend our lives very contently living in rejection of God. But not only that, but we're actively hostile toward Him. Not only do we have the conflict in our past that, that our past sin presents, but, but you and I continue to sin every day, continually setting ourselves up against him in hostility. That's what this conflict looks like. The ball is 100% in our court. It's the job of the offending party to make things right, but God prepared a body. Against all expectation, he prepared a body. God has received 100% of the offense in this conflict, but he is fully committed to resolution with the violators. This is the God we serve, church. A God whose love exceeds beyond merely tolerating our sinfulness, but going to the ends of creation to be reconciled with us, though he has no need to, though he has no obligation to, though there's no reasonable expectation that he would. But he conceived 
a body, a human body, in the womb of a woman named Mary, miraculously through his Holy Spirit, and caused that body to be born in a manger. And the identity of this body was his own son, his own eternal joy. God did what he had no need to do and what we could never hope to do in sending his son. Again, R.C. Sproul says the glory of the gospel is this. The one from whom we needed to be saved is the one who saved us. The one from whom we needed to be saved is the one who saved us. Remember that. Lock that in your memory. Friends, look, look back down at Hebrews 10. This body that was prepared was a body clearly prepared to be sacrificed. A body distinctly different than all other bulls and goats and lambs because it was not a bull or goat or lamb. It was a human body. Finally, a sacrifice that could be offered in the place of humans. But also, verse 7, look at verse 7, the body of one who came to perfectly do God's will as only the Son of God himself can do. Meaning that, that, that God sent his Son, being both fully God and fully man, being fully man so that he could actually stand in the place of sinners and be a sufficient sacrifice, but fully God being the only one who has the ability to live perfectly and without sin and having the power to extend his sacrifice to all sinners who would believe in him. Arthur Rhodes said, if Christ the Redeemer had been only God, he could not have died since God by his very nature cannot die. It was only as a man that Christ could represent humanity and die as a man. Now, if Christ the Redeemer had only been a man, his death would not have had the infinite value sufficient to supply the redemption for the sins of all mankind. Nobody saw this coming. And though you might know this to be true because you've been a Christian for a number of years, you might take this for granted or assume it, but do not cease to be amazed by it. That God did what nobody could have reasonably expected him to do in mind-numbingly brilliant grace and love for you. And listen, the baby that was born in Bethlehem did indeed die. He marched the body that God had prepared for him, carrying a cross on his shoulder, up the hill of Calvary, and his veins were opened, and his perfect human blood was shed. Hebrews 7, or Hebrews 9, 12 says, this time not the blood of bulls or goats, but the blood of the Son of God was shed. And the Son of God, the great high priest himself, offered his own body. He came to be the priest and to make an offering but he didn't offer something else. He offered himself. He offered the body that had been prepared by God the Father on the cross in our place 
But would this sacrifice, would this sacrifice finally be the one that worked? Did Jesus prove to be the mediator that we needed? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, write this one down, read it, read it this next week. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. He says, for there is one God. Affirming what we saw in 1 Timothy 1.17, right? For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. It's as if Paul is saying, it worked. He is the one mediator between God and man, who can satisfactorily fix this conflict. There is someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on us, and to remove the rod of God's wrath from us so that his terror frightens us no more. To answer Job's request. I think C.J. Mahaney is right in saying that this single sentence of 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, uh, it, it, it is it effectively sums up the substance of the message of the whole Bible. That's what the whole Bible is about. And in fact, uh, when, when our boys were, were even younger, and uh, I, I sing songs to them when they go to bed inconsistently, but one of, the, one of my favorite songs early on was one that I, I, I would sing to them to help them to understand the gospel. And it was a song based on this that that said, there is only one God, there is only one mediator standing between God and man. He alone is the way to salvation. We sing that chorus over and over. Because that is the message of the gospel. There is one God, and there's one mediator to stand between God and man. He alone is the way to salvation. Friends, the great high priest stood vertically, hanging on a cross. He stood and offered the only sacrifice sufficient to atone for human sin, for the sin of all who would believe. Friends, he stood once. And this is a theme of Hebrews 9, 10, and, and, and we see it again in 11, that, that Jesus stood once for all. Now look at, look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, in other words, when Christ had stood once in his priestly ministry, he sat down. He sat down. You read those words in the Bible and you don't, you don't immediately see the effect, uh, the, the profundity of what that means when you see that he sat down at the right hand of God. There is so much joy in that one phrase, that he sat down. He offered one sacrifice. And then after being raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he sat down. His priestly ministry completes.
sacrifice accepted. As Hebrews 10 says, there are no more sacrifices to be made because the perfect sacrifice had been made. He stood once and he sat down forever. In Christ, we have one who stood once to sit forever. No more annual sacrifices to be offered. No more searching for a mediator. No more constant self-atonement for you. Joy upon joy upon joy in its place. Now, like I said, I could, <laughs> I could continue to preach for a few hours on, on Hebrews 10 here. And, and this has already given us plenty to contemplate, plenty of fodder to fuel our worship this week. But I want to leave us with something precise and practical. I have two pieces of encouragement for you in this Christmas season. Two, two, two simple encouragements. The first is this. Don't, don't ignore the dilemma. Don't ignore the dilemma. God gave Israel an entire sacrificial system just to keep them from forgetting the dilemma. Just to keep them from forgetting the dilemma that remained. If you haven't trusted in the work of the mediator, Jesus Christ, the dilemma for you is very real. It is very real. And there will come a day when God will finally, once for all, judge everybody who hasn't been found in Christ, who haven't placed their faith in Christ, who haven't trusted Jesus to be the mediator between them and God, who haven't trusted him to be the only one who can reconcile them to God. If, that, if that's you, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ that way, the dilemma is very real. Very real. And it does you no good to ignore it and just live life as though it didn't exist, hoping that when you do get to that day, when you face God's judgment, either when Jesus returns or after you die, that dilemma will become very real for you, whether you choose to ignore it or not. Don't ignore the dilemma. But instead, face it in, in, in all of its brutal reality and turn to Christ and know that He is the one who can and has perfectly satisfied the, the dilemma for you. And all you have to do is not stand and try to atone for yourself. Just believe in Him. If you don't know how to do that, come, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk to you about it. Or talk to the person sitting next to you, the person you were talking to before the service, whom you already have a conversation with. This Christmas, there's no more important conversation than you, than, that you could have than that. Don't ignore the dilemma. Secondly and finally, <laughs> this, is, this is my best directive this morning, sit down. Sit down. If you are in Christ, his rest is your rest. If you're feeling guilty, if you are frustrated, if you're struggling with your sense of identity and you're just living on that treadmill of self-atonement, sit down. Look to Christ. 
who's seated right now at the right hand of God and rest in his work and trust that his work is sufficient both for, for past sins and even for what you are struggling against right now. His high priestly ministry for you is enough and more than enough at that. And again, if, if that's you, I, I'd, I'd love to pray with you this morning. Feel free to come up and, and talk with me or to Jeff, and, and we'd love to, to just pray with you and, and help you to, to see and understand biblically what it, what it means practically to, to just sit down and rest this Christmas season and for the rest of your life. Friends, in Christ, we have one who stood once and now sits forever. This is good news. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did stand once, that he offered a sacrifice that goes beyond all of our reasonable expectations. We thank you that you did prepare a body for him. We thank you that he came to do your will so that he might be able to effectively stand in our place. And we thank you that when he stood, it was indeed finished. When he cried from the cross, it is finished, we could be sure and confident that 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 was a true cry. Lord, I pray for anybody this morning who is walking on that treadmill of self-atonement. Would you be gracious to them? Apply the mediating work of Christ to their hearts and their lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.